Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm sick of it! Every year! We give power to one person! Okay, Mr. Post, please. Come on, Post. <laughs> you guys talked about that. You, you talked about that on yesterday's show. Oh, my God. Yes, we did. Uh, great show yesterday, Andrew. Uh, and, you know... Uh, Mike Boast. Yeah, I say this all the time. Most of our people, I guess, most of our listeners are in Chicago. Uh, and so they're obsessed with Chicago issues, Chicago politicians, and they don't really follow what's going on downstate. And uh, one of the delights over the last few years, D, is I spending more time paying attention to Republicans from downstate. Mike Boast is a piece of work, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sick of it. <laughs> I'm sick of it. Every year we give power, power to, to one person. person. <laughs> you know, it's that 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 uh, tirade is about uh, what is it? Seven years old? I want to say I don't know, maybe older than that. It launched his career. He made a career out of it, throwing the papers in the air, denouncing Michael Madigan. He was ahead of the times. It will never get old on this program. All right, <laughs> no, <laughs> never. In fact, I'm sick of it. Every <laughs> year, we give power to one person. All right, now we can't play it for like a month. All right. Oh, come on. We're probably going to play it Friday. Because yeah, I know Friday at oh, what a week, we're going to talk about gerrymandering. So come on, Boast. Boast's got a big decision. You know, well, it could be Boast versus Miller. What a choice, we, Republicans. We've worked together long enough. All you got to do is just bring it up, and I will play it. <laughs> he can't help himself, ladies and gentlemen. His, his, his finger reaches for the button. Ding! I'm sick of it. And then all I have to do, by the way, just say that these two, this word, it's like a joint word, Raylo. Bing! I don't want an answer. It's not something you ignore. <laughs> You're 100% full of shit, is what I think. If you think we want offense, fuck you then. Oh, Who are you to tell me I'm full of shit? Come on. Actually, had that ready already. Come on. Come on now, you two. Get on separate sides. Of the room. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Wednesday, November 3rd, is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, even what kind of pot to smoke. Crazy world we're living in. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. Subscribe, and if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y. It is Wednesday, November 3rd, and live from downstate Illinois and his attic, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, legendary Chicago journalist Monroe Anderson and making his Ben Jarofsky show podcast debut, G2 Brown. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. 
Hello, everybody. Ben Jarowski here. We're calling this Panic Time Wednesday, and here's why. You know why Democrats are panicking. I was kind of panicking myself last night when the results from Virginia came in, the gubernatorial election. We're talking a lot about that. David Ferris did the deep dive last uh, weekend. We dropped that one. He predicted it. We all knew it was going down. Uh, Terry McAuliffe was uh, defeated by Glenn Youngkin. Uh, the Republicans are now uh, in charge of the state of Virginia. They run, uh, at least they have, the, the governor is Republican in a state that went for uh, Joe Biden by 10 percentage points over Donnie Trump. What a shift in less than a year. Good God, panic time. And meanwhile, it was neck and neck in Jersey where uh, the incumbent Philip Murphy, a Democrat, was battling it out with Jack uh, Sia Torelli, uh, who's, no, his name is not Sia later. Sorry, D. It's a really bad joke, and I humbly apologize for saying. Oh, I mean, every time- you you getting fired is the see you later thing. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. You're <laughs> dipping into another pot, my friend. Oh, it all comes together. That that was that one I got to say was more upsetting because the Democrats had a narrative already set in place to explain why Murphy won and McCullough lost. Monroe Anderson has joined us. Monroe Anderson has joined us. But the Democrats had already had a narrative in place to explain why uh, uh, Murphy uh, won and uh, McCullough won, uh, lost. And the narrative was that uh, Murphy was true to essential new, uh, new deal democratic values. Uh, and he did not deviate I did not do any watered down Democratic, uh, you know, ROM like initiatives. Uh, so that's why he was victorious. And that was neck and neck. I'm like, oh my God, even that narrative won't work. But it looks as though, uh, good news, Philip Murphy will edge out uh, Sia Torelli uh, in New Jersey. It's neck and neck. New York Times, man, what a piece of work the New York Times is. I always blame the New York Times. I know I'm literally blaming the messenger, ladies and gentlemen, uh, when things go bad for Democrats. So the messenger is generally the New York Times. And I always blame, I'm like, you know, the New York Times didn't update their voting totals on their, for some reason, uh, on when I looked at it, the, my computer, but I looked at a phone, they'd updated. So my computer, uh, the Republican, Sia Torelli, was still winning. When I look at my phone, Murphy was winning. So I'm yelling. I'm on the phone with Monroe. I'm yelling at the New York Times. Damn it, New York Times. Now I kind of feel bad for, you know, because um, I'm just blaming the messenger. But anyway, uh, so it looks as though uh, Philip Murphy will prevail and the Democrats will win New Jersey's a lot closer uh uh, than anyone anticipated, but here's I gotta. I just have to shake my head and smile. Monroe knows, probably doesn't know where I'm going with this one, so I'm gonna just say this right now. No sooner uh, had the polls closed. I just read this on the internet uh, last night, or, or at least no sooner than the early votes were coming in, uh, showing that uh, uh, it was going to be a victory for the Republicans in the state of Virginia. Then who else but Donnie Trump started pounding himself on the chest and taking full credit. <laughs> Donnie, you're a piece of work. And I, and I, you know, I, I, as time goes on, I become more and more impressed. It's sort of like me and Rahm Emanuel. When I look at Rahm, Rahm Emanuel, I just see how willful he is and how, it's, how filled with entitlement he is. Like, oh God, I wish I was more like that. It's kind of an impressive display. You know, he, he knows what he wants. He's going to get it and he doesn't care what anybody says. He doesn't care if Monroe Anderson criticizes him. He's going to go for it. And Donald Trump is very similar. You know, put his Donald Trump put his name on a building overlooking the Chicago River, most prominent position in the city of Chicago, a city that by and large hates him. He doesn't care if you hate him. He loves it that you hate him. In fact, he's in his mind. He's turned it around so that like you really love him, even though you hate him. So anyway, uh, the reality in Virginia 
uh, is that in order to be victorious, uh, the Republican candidate, uh, Youngkin, had to distance himself from Donald Trump. And so he successfully, we'll talk to Monroe about this. I know he's got a lot of theories. What he did was he successfully emanated Trump-like dog whistles for MAGA. And MAGA responded to him every now and then. Yeah, this election. Oh, this. He didn't come right out and say Joe Biden uh, stole the election. But he goes, we have a lot of concerns about the election. Even though, what concerns? It worked. There were no concerns. The election worked. But hey, we've got concern. That's enough for MAGA. Oh, <laughs> he's our kind of guy. But meanwhile, please don't bring, bring Donald Trump into the state. Please don't do any kind of rallies in our state, Donald Trump. Please stay away because I want to pretend you don't exist because I don't want to upset what like that suburban swing voter. It's so bizarre, the psyche of the suburban swing voter. And so they kind of pretend as though Donald Trump doesn't exist. And they voted for Youngkin as though, you know, he wasn't part and parcel of the same movement or the same party that brought you Donald Trump. So anyway, he won by distancing himself from Donald Trump and <laughs> no sooner are the election votes in, the election results in, Donald Trump is uh, calling up, I think it was a talk show in Virginia, to proclaim uh, credit for winning. And then he said something classic Trump. He said if he uh, hadn't supported Youngkin, uh, Youngkin would have lost by 15 percentage points. I'm just shaking my head going, man, this dude, he'll say absolutely anything that pops into his head at any time, regardless of what the evidence may show. And that's kind of like a strength, ladies and gentlemen, that ability to say anything, even if it's not true, and do it with like conviction and certainty. And your listeners, your, your, your supporters will just love you for it. That's something the Democrats are going to have to deal with because it's not going anywhere, ladies and gentlemen. We, we learned that yesterday. It's panic time for Democrats but as uh, we always do when Democrats are panicking, we bring on the son of Gary, Indiana, who's cool and calm under all kinds of pressure. And he's not panicking. Oh, no. Monroe Anderson is ready. He just he understands what, what happened yesterday, and he knows exactly what the Democrats have to do to prevail uh, in the uh, coming months as we lead into the November 22, 2022 elections. And I, look at me. I'm like, eh. Not Monroe. He's cool and calm and steady as a rock. So without further ado, Monroe Anderson, explain to us what happened yesterday and what the Democrats must do to make sure it won't happen again in the coming year. Take it away, Monroe. Youngkin won. <laughs> okay, now now I'll, I'll, I'll explain how he won. First of all, He's a rich man with a qualification for being a Republican, I guess, nowadays. He's a very rich man. He ran tons of ads, all where he sounded like a Mitch Romney Republican. Very calm and reasonable, except the last two weeks, he turned MAGA on us. And he started running ads about um, critical race theory and other 
it was a dog whistle stuff. I mean, it, it, the only the, the only one he didn't run or just and say Trump was the one that said Trump won. <laughs> he didn't he didn't go that far. And the other thing is he tried to keep himself as distant from Trump as possible because Trump is is a, a poison pill in the Republican Party to anybody that's not MAGA. And um, what Youngkin was trying to appeal to was the uh, white women in the suburbs who had abandoned the party for Trump because of Trump uh, last year. And so he didn't, he didn't want them upset. He, he said, Karen, <laughs> I'm your type of guy, Karen. <laughs> And then what's more? Yeah. They say, oh, isn't he cute? Doesn't he say the sweetest whisper, the sweetest things in our ears? So basically, the other thing that happened in Virginia was in the rural areas. Yeah. Yunkin got more votes than Trump did. And the reason for that is A, Trump wasn't telling them don't vote like he did in Georgia yeah. last year. And secondly, they're pissed off because they believe that the vote was stolen and that Trump won. And so they, this was some revenge voting they were doing. So they turned out in greater numbers than they did last year. Hmm. And, of course, uh, Democrats weren't as fired up. And this no, is uh, we, we, Democrats weren't fired up at all. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's the problem because uh, rather than tout all that they've given to us through the Re- Rescue Act early on, which was some amazing, no Republicans voted for it, Democrats passed it, and it people were getting money, and it, it had a lot in it. And, of course, the Republicans either ignored it or lied about it, what it had to offer. For example, um, James Clyburn was on MSNBC earlier today, mm-hmm. and he said that he would go to black campuses, and the students would be complaining uh, to him about how they heard that he was going to uh, shut down HBCUs. And he said that the rescue bill, he said, yeah, this is a total lie, uh, that the rescue bill um, um, helped all HBCUs who were in financial trouble because of the pandemic. They couldn't have their students on campus, therefore they weren't getting any money. And um, they gave HBCUs through the rescue bill a billion dollars. So none of them are in debt anymore. So it's just the opposite of what the Republicans were putting out. Mm. Uh, but the problem is in messaging, the Democrats, the only thing you heard, and they're not the only thing, but the main thing yeah. you heard from the Democrats was whether it should be $6 billion or $3 billion or one, two, or $2 billion on the human aspect of the infrastructure bill. Hmm. They didn't talk about the Democrats. Should have been bragging from here to high heaven about what they've given 
in the rescue bill that they alone did. And when they discussed the human aspect of the um, infrastructure bill, they should have been discussing those parts of it specifically that mm-hmm. would help you and me. You know, if, 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 if we were millenn- millennials and had, um, a, a, as my son is, and had a four-year-old child, um, the, the bill will um, make sure that he gets to go to preschool and it won't cost um, my son anything. Well, I'll take it one step further, Monroe. And uh, I think you're absolutely correct. there's just a, a messaging issue and a communication issue. That's like the euphemistic way of talking about it. Um, but when I think about what the message that Democrats have been sending out across the country for the last, where are we now? We're in November. So really for the last three or four months, and I know they've been sending out this message because I talk about it obsessively with my guests is how the Democrats don't control the Senate and how the Democratic Party is split and how two senators, Cinema and Manchin, are blocking Joe Biden from implementing his agenda. And I, we talk about it all the time. We fret about it all the time. There's a constant parade of senators. Uh, uh, there's images of the parade of Cinema and Manchin going to the White House or sometimes uh, Biden going to the Senate to meet with them. Uh, And so it seems as though that the Democrats are in deadlock. But wait, there's more. If you go to the grocery store, you're going to see that everything costs way more than you remember from a year ago. If you go fill up your tank, you're going to see that gasoline costs way more than it did. Yeah. Uh, and so that people that has people upset with, with the Karens of Virginia. The other problem was that um, they had to suffer their children not being in school because of the pandemic, because it was, everything yeah. was shut down. And while Deep down in their heart, they know that was the best thing to do. Um, they're still pissed off because they had to do it. Yeah. Um, and then there's the Afghanistan war, which um, most of us are glad that we're out of. But a lot of people um, bought into the Republican um, lie that it was the worst thing that ever happened to America yeah. uh, because um, th- uh, what, four or five Americans were killed during the, the um, retreat and that there are some people that are still there. Although we got 125,000, I think the number is, Americans out, comparing that to Vietnam where we got nobody out. I mean, zero people yeah. I uh, actually don't know. Uh, we that's a whole conversation for another time. The impact of uh, withdrawing from Afghanistan and with the electric. I I I'd like I'd like to see some uh, 
uh, some polling on that, or and I don't even know. If some of the ex, the um, ex, um, post voting, uh, the exhibition, what do they call those things that they where they interview you after you leave? Yeah. Yeah. Voting poll, like the, um, exit polls. Exit polls. The exit polls. Some, some, um, some of those who were interviewed at the exit polls cited that. Yeah. Well, I, I just don't know how. What a. I. Well, what I'm saying is, it's 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 part of a. Thing. Yeah, I, I get yeah, all so that. It's a blend of things. Right. I, it's a blend of things. Um, but just go back to the messaging thing. Uh, so, yes, that that message that uh, the Democrats have been. Uh, beaming out for the last three months is that they can't deliver uh, and they're at uh, war with themselves. Right. Uh, and there's these two recalcitrant uh, senators that uh, Biden uh, cannot convince to go along for the good of the country. Uh, and now it's, it's, there's a further ideological divide. And so you're right. It's a, uh, it's a very divided party. Uh, and, um, Youngkin successfully, as you pointed out, ran, uh, avoided Trump. Uh, but going back to the thing you said about the historically black colleges and uh, universities and the aid, you're right. That's just another thing where the Republicans are more successful. I have seen so many emails from Republicans regarding how much aid that Donald Trump gave uh, to historical black colleges and universities. And I'm like, I know this has a cumulative effect on people's brains of like you project something over and over again and people buy into it. Uh, I've, I've discovered this with cancel culture, just the notion of cancel culture uh, as a force in American society that victimizes the right and is prepared perpetrated by the left has just been beamed out. And so people on the left buy into it, not so much lefties, but liberals uh, and, 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 uh, and independence for sure. Yes. And yeah, they buy into it and it's very successful mind manipulation. And now, so let's go back to something else. You said critical race theory. You had a great line, which I don't know if you didn't repeat it, uh, uh, just now, but I'm going to st steal it from when you said to me when when I talked to you a couple hours ago. Uh, you said that um, uh, Biden won the white women vote in the suburbs, but without Trump in the race, white women went back to being white women. That's classic Monroe Anderson, <laughs> which then reminded me of Cleavon Little and uh, Blazing Saddles, uh, where he goes, where are the white women at? And uh, so I watched Monroe to this point, the way in which critical race, and we're going to probably talk about this with our next guest, G2 Brown, when he comes on, because he was a big advocate for um, uh, elected school board uh, in Chicago. But I watched how the critical race theory, which I don't even know if I could define it, but I, I can guarantee you that 99% of white people in America really don't know what it is. But in general, it boils down to blaming white people. And I watched how that notion for, that for blaming. For racism. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For racism. Right. You, and so, just, so, so they get to do racist things because we accuse them of doing racist yeah. things. <laughs> and then so like. You know, that becomes a force. And then Condoleezza Rice goes on, I forget, with The View and says that, she, you know, that 
they go, they've gone too far with critical race theory. You've got to stop blaming white people for all this stuff. And it's like you could feel it as a movement. It's really a backlash to what went down in 2020 in the aftermath of George Floyd. You know, Monroe, the backlash happened. It's, it, we knew it's, it would. It's lineage is busing, crosstown busing, um, anything where uh, concerned white mothers were afraid their children would be exposed to these sa- these, these darker-skinned savages. Uh, they don't want them in the class, and now they don't want them knowing. They want to keep... They'd rather keep their children ignorant than have them know about their true history of this country. And, you know, it's just amazing to me. It is. It's a, it's a very sophisticated campaign that taps into a lot of uh, feelings and attitudes that people have that they don't often express. Uh, and, well, they don't uh, often express in public. Yeah. They, they express it in quiet rooms. Yeah. And now they're expressing it publicly. And just everything, Monroe. I just think about this. this is, like, so, where was it? The Senator um, Cotton, yeah, of, Cotton. Of, of Arkansas badgering uh, Merrick Garland. We talked about this last week. Uh, in fact, you sent me the clip. Uh, it was you that sent me that clip of, of him badgering Merrick Garland on the issue of whether the Justice Department was going to uh, uh, punish parents who speak out at school board meetings. You know, there was an instance yeah. with this really abusive behavior uh, by uh, parents at school board meetings. And the Republican attitude is th- these parents are on the right side. And they're good, law-abiding, decent people who are standing up for their children. And these bureaucrats and these tyrants are trying to stifle their views and uh, cancel their culture like they do to everybody. It's so pervasive, Monroe. You get what yeah. I'm saying? Right. Right. And I, Yeah, it's really... No, it's it's, it's, it's um, white privilege is being upset and challenged. And they don't like it. And so as a result, um, I, I keep blocking out his name. The, the, the teenager that killed up. Kyle Rittenhouse. Yeah, Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle, Kyle, Kyle Rittenhouse has more than $2 million in a defense fund that was sent to him from white people across the nation. Uh, and... His lawyer's defense, the trial started yesterday, and the defense is that um, he was, it was self-defense, because he was walking down the street uh, with a a, a long rifle, and um, some of the, quote, looters and and rioters, uh, although there's no evidence of that, uh, tried to take the gun away from him because it was dangerous, and he killed a couple of people. One, he shot in the back, and it was um, self-defense, because he was white. If he had been a 17-year-old black boy, the cops would have face-planted him 
into the cement, if not just shot him and killed him, period. Oh, yeah. No, we... We're, we can move ahead of ourselves, but I guess your point is well taken that uh, the Kyle Rittenhouse defense uh, is just a continuation of the outcry against critical race theory where no white person is ever offensive. Right. You know what I'm saying? No, no matter what they do. And in, in, in the car, just so you know, the people he shot weren't black. There were two white people. Right. Uh, and they were and that one is so blatant. They weren't rioting. <laughs> or yeah, they were rioting. protests. Well, somebody was rioting. I don't yeah, know if those, those them, two. Yeah. No, the guy with the skate skateboard. Uh, he 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 was he was chasing after yeah Kyle to um, take the rifle away. No, I I hear you. There's a, I mean, I read the I read this these accounts and it's just it's it's mind blowing that um, here's a situation. We're on a tangent here, but where there was an active shooter, and so. Like you could argue that the people that try to stop the active shooter were heroes. And right. in a different context, they would be presented as heroes who gave up their life to save other lives. Right. You, that, that would be the narrative that would be put out. Instead, right. it's being turned into they were predators. They right. were looters. They're not even victims, even though they're dead. Right. And uh, well, the judge says they're not to be called victims. Yes. They were, in fact, victims. Big time. So, yes. Yeah, but it's just, I mean, it's, it, the thing is, there is a large percentage of white Americans who, um, as children, were read bedtime stories um, in, in, in history class and other places where it was, it was like every, everything was hap- happily ever after, for example, um, in the South, uh, it was not the Civil War. It was the Northern War of Aggression. No, and um, all, all those people who were on statues that had been stripped, uh, taken down of, of late, uh, were great heroes, uh, protecting the honor and the uh, integrity of the South instead yeah. of insurrectionists. No, it's... Uh... It will always be a challenge for Democrats on this issue. They will always be uh, walking a tightrope on this issue, Monroe. And well, you know what is? You know, that's the problem. They're walking a tightrope, whereas they should be just telling the truth and not letting Republicans um, set up the storyline that they have to respond to. They ought to be telling, okay, slavery happened, folks. And black folks haven't gotten over it yet because there, there's still uh, repercussions from from being enslaved, uh, from um, Jim Crow, from just um, discriminatory practices that um, exist to this day. And we need to talk about it and face up to it, uh, have a truth and re- reconciliation. Uh, campaign effort, and then we can move on to the next thing. 
yes, uh, I guess got uh, word that G2 Brown will be joining us really soon. G2 Brown uh, will be joining us uh, really soon. We're waiting to talk to him. Uh, let's uh, let's talk about a little bit about New Jersey, neck and neck. Uh, and uh, Philip Murphy looks like uh, he will prevail uh, in New Jersey. And I just like to remind people that New Jersey, uh, the governor, the Democrat has not won back to back elections. I can't remember uh, since when, but a long, long time. We may have to go back to the 70s. And it wasn't that long ago when Chris Christie was the uh, governor of New Jersey. So we tend to view New Jersey as a Democratic state. But in reality, it could go Republican for a certain type of Republican. Illinois is much the same way, Monroe. Uh, well, we had a Republican yeah, governor just four years ago. I'm not sure now. I mean, it's been so long. Uh well, we had Ron Ronner was the governor from uh, just oh. four years ago. Pritzker beat him just oh, no, in 2018. Yeah. Uh, I know you put that one out of your head, exactly. but uh, he, he was a he was a zero governor. So. He was a, yeah, right, exactly right. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> so this these uh, larger struggle. I know the Republicans are going to take uh, what happened in Virginia and what happened uh, in is close in New Jersey, very close election. And by the way, Murphy has still not been declared the absolute figure. I just want well, to say, you know, it's been all kind of screw up. For example, mm-hmm. um, they've c- counted the um, votes in Hoboken twice. So they had to take away uh, one of those counts, uh, which mm-hmm. meant that Murphy got 8,000 votes taken away. And um, Sia Torelli, Sia Torelli got 2,000 votes taken away. So that knocked down Murphy's lead that he had. Um, and they there are some votes that haven't been counted. You know, it's a mess, but um, according to Steve Kornacki, who is is like an incredible <laughs> geek. Yeah, right, exactly. He's a geek of geeks. Yeah. In, in, in fact, um, he, he the, during the 2020 election, he became so popular in his geekdom that khakis was selling, um, got a sellout on on um, those those beige pants, khakis, and white shirts. You know, because that's that's all he wears. Yeah, that's his look. Yeah, yeah, that's his look. But anyway, he um, he says that there are no votes for for the Republican to find of any significance, and. Murphy's ahead, so Murphy's going to win. Again. Yeah, that's uh, that seems to be the prevailing wisdom. That even Nate Cohn, uh, the New York Times uh, geekster, uh, he he came out. He he issued a similar statement on a tweet or whatever. So, but, uh, but you it's know, too close. It's too close. That's the point. That's the point. It's too close. And, uh, yeah, too close. And so, so you look ahead for the coming year. Uh, what do you think the Democrats have to do uh, so that what happened went down yesterday in terms of elections that were way too close than they should have been or elections where they lost, uh, where they uh, uh, should have won? G2 Brown has joined us, ladies and gentlemen. G2 Brown has joined us. Uh, Monroe, but go, looking ahead to uh, the coming year, what do they have to do? What's that? The Democrats have to speak English to their constituents. They, they have to um, address the things that are important to black people, the two things most important to black people, which is uh, voter suppression and police reform. They've, they've put that on a back burner somewhere. 
and you know, she, I mean, every now and then they give her a little lip service, but they don't address those issues as if they're real and important. With the with the the, the rural people, rural white people, they need to to um, tell them what they can and will do for them. And for example, um, in the human infrastructure bill. Um, those people will get broadband because they don't have that. Okay, so now if they get broadband, those people, then um, their medical services, they can, they can get visits from the doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, things will be better. Yeah, I don't know whose phone that is, but... Uh, That's mine. I'll, 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 I was going to say, uh, it's uh, Terry McCullough from Virginia calling in to complain about bad press coverage. All right, we're going to bring on uh, the great, the immortal, legendary G2 Brown uh, and uh, the pride and joy of the south side of Chicago. Uh, I've known G2 for many, many years. used to go down to Coco's office back in the days when I actually left my house, uh, G2, and I wasn't afraid of uh, catching some virus or what have you. Uh, So welcome to the show, G2. It's good to see you, Ben. Good to see you. And uh, it's good to meet you, Brother Monroe. I've heard a lot about you. Yeah, you same here. It's good to meet you. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You can G2's got one of the greatest radio voices uh, in the world, Monroe. Do you hear that voice coming in, booming loud and clear? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, G two Brown, we're going to uh, bring you into the conversation that we're having. Uh, mm-hmm. But first, let's get what you want to talk about uh, on the table, and probably uh, uh, we'll blend in what we're talking about. We were talking about the elections yesterday, and the fact that the Republicans prevailed in Virginia, did very close in uh, New Jersey, and uh, they're pounding their chest right now, saying uh, they know what the people want, and the tides have changed, uh, and the Democrats uh, are through, and the Republicans. MAG is going to re- retake America. They, uh, they, and so that's what they're saying right now. And, uh, we're, we're, we're sifting through the evidence to see if there's any truth to that. Uh, and I am definitely going to ask you about school board issues because just, I told you this already, the contradictions between Chicago where we don't want school board democracy, uh, and the rest of America where Republicans benefit by school board democracy are just so obvious that uh, we're going to have that conversation. But uh, why don't you talk a little bit about equity or else, the equity or else campaign. I know that's what you, uh, that's uh, in your heart right now. So uh, take it away, G2. Yes, sir. So again, thanks for having me, uh, Ben, and and, um, I appreciate the platform. Um, Just connected to to, to the conversation that you are having, um, you know, the, the biggest oppressor in black communities and particularly in urban places across the United States. Unfortunately, they're not Republicans, it's corporate Democrats. I think the lack of connection, the lack of will to have a connection to the basic needs in black communities um, has created moments like this. It's created elections with low voter turnout and the response is always to chastise people that don't vote. I say this as a person that, that votes faithfully. But, you know, when you live in communities where your schools are under-resourced, your children are treated like criminals, you don't have culturally relevant curriculum, the liquor store is your grocery store, you, 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 you have more, uh, a better chance of, of knowing a slumlord than affordable home ownership, 
where there's where eighty percent of the businesses in your neighborhood are ran by someone else, and you look up and it's Democrats that are governing this, and there's just been this unwillingness to hear the voices of black uh, parents, black people in our community. Uh, case in point, you know, as you know, in 2015, in order to save Diet High School, we had to wage a hunger strike. Despite the fact we had an activated community that uh, uh, had thousands of people engaged, we developed a community plan for not only Diet, but six of its feeders. We did the district's job. But because we were black, Rahm Emanuel would not hear us because school closing is all about remaking urban landscapes and they want us out of that neighborhood, they would not hear us. And that is a microcosm of what happens all over the country. Um, so to the organizer, you know, moments of crisis, like the, the, the pandemics of structural racism and COVID-19, create opportunities um, for organizers to, to actually help politicize people, build consciousness, and increase engagement around improving our lives. And no moment, I think, is more pertinent than the one that we're in. With unprecedented investment coming into American cities, uh, we, as a Journey for Justice Alliance, began to reach out to national and local organizations across issues and say, let's stop working in our silos and let's build a quality of life agenda that we can begin to pressure together local elected officials at the national level saying, this is what, this is the investment we want from the American Rescue Act. This is how we want housing transformed. This is how we want public education transformed. There's an opportunity to, you know, public education will, in my humble opinion, as you know, I've got at least 25 years history, whether as an educator, uh, training teachers, doing youth development programs, running community schools, um, and so I have love for public education, not for what it was, but for what it could be. And so there's an opportunity to really reimagine public education right now. Um, you know, so should, you know, because the pandemic will be with us for Lord knows how long, why can't we have smaller class sizes now, a maximum of 50 students in a class? Why can't we have schools with medical clinics in them as the standard? Why can't we have culturally relevant curriculum? Why can't we have guaranteed pre-K for every child? You know, part of my experience as an organizer, and this is the thing that kind of lit my fire around the school closes debate, is that I encountered so many black schools with half-day kindergartens. I encountered schools where there were no art, there was no music, there was no inspiration. It was snatched out of our schools. And so there's an opportunity now to across the United States to build a grassroots agenda uh, and demand uh, for something different. So we launched the Equity Else campaign. We partnered, we partnered with organizations like Center for Popular Democracy, Clean Water Action, National Alliance Against uh, Racism, Political Repression, um, uh, Dignity in Schools Week, uh, Dignity in Schools campaign, I'm sorry, Black Lives Matter at Schools, um, and several other organizations environmental justice groups um, that are that do amazing work in their own issue. And we said, let's start doing listening projects around the country in these communities and build regional quality of life agendas that we will, in May, come together and build a national quality of life uh, platform. In the process, 
We're also engaging with elected officials uh, from school board members to uh, state reps and state senators and to folks at the federal level, like a Chewy Garcia, like a Jamal Bowman, like a Senator Van Hollen, um, that are supporting our agenda. And in September, we're doing a march on Washington, September 20th and 21st at Black Lives Matter Plaza to present this quality of life agenda. Now, I know that this approach is not new. Um, we study the work of Marcus Garvey. The reason why the Universal Negro Improvement Association was so large is because they went door to door and they asked people, uh, black people all over the world, what do you need? And that created the Black Cross nurses and the Black Legionnaires and the, the Negro World newspaper. It was built off the grassroots. Now, uh, while the uh, black elite hated Marcus Garvey, uh, the people loved them, and the people loved the work that they did. The March on Washington was a quality of life march. But as of late, we work in these silos when we're fighting the same wolf, right? The same wolf that makes it necessary to fight for community benefits agreements to stop companies from dumping toxic waste in our communities. It's the same wolf that closes 50 schools with a swipe of a pen and then shrugs his shoulders when violence explodes in the city of Chicago. Right, or turns all the schools in New Orleans charter, ignores the fact that these schools are worse than the public schools that were there uh, before a Hurricane Katrina. So I think our work is to bring folks together and say, we don't have to lead the way in environmental justice. You lead the way, but let's stand together around a common set of values and let's leave the next generation something more than problems. Let's leave them some infrastructure. Let's leave, let's leave them some real poli- real transformative policy victories. So one of the things we're hearing from people, that five out of six Americans want their schools improved and not closed. Um, only two out of 10 Americans want charter schools. So we're saying, let's make American schools sustainable community schools, where the community has deep input in every aspect of what happens in that school. So... We're launching these listening projects. We've done up to date over 50 in about 30 cities around the country. And we're continuing that work. It's, it, it's ramping up. Uh, we'll be doing these listening projects in February. Uh, like I said, in April, we'll, we'll develop regional quality of life agendas. May 13th and 14th, we're going to be convening in Baltimore, Maryland at the Journey for Justice Annual Conference to reach consensus on a national quality of life agenda. And then we'll be publicly releasing it September 20th, 21st uh, in Washington, D.C., in Black Lives Matter Plaza and during an advocacy day in D.C. Um, Most important in all of this Mm -hmm. is also the building of an alternative. Uh, One of the things that's happened during this pandemic is that you've seen organizations create alternative structures like mutual aid efforts, um, where they're, they're giving people household supplies and food so that they can shelter in place. That's happening in dozens of cities around this country. Coco um, in Chicago has a project that's still going on called Coco Serves, and we served over 30,000 people since the pandemic started. And it's youth-led. Young people are leading this at Kenwood United Church of Christ on 46 in Greenwood. Um, so I'm a firm believer that the uh, greatest weakness of any oppressor is that they're going to always underestimate the oppressed. Mm. And so we can't look at ourselves through the lens of the oppressor. We have to look at ourselves 
uh, with the capacity to actually be system changers, to be change agents. And um, that's that's how we run diet. You know, everybody told us, don't fight Rama man, you can't win. And before you knew it, he was getting chased off the stage and the budget hearing was 700 people. And now that school is open with $16 million in new investments. It's a level one high school for the neighborhood. To me, that's not an anomaly. That's a microcosm of what's possible. But we got to build that type of commitment and unity across issues. So that's the Equity Health campaign. Um, we believe that that's America's biggest problem is the baseless hatred that it has for people to look like, you know, me and Brother Anderson and Native Americans and, and Latinx folks as well. And we have to make America face her ugly. No, our job to me is not to integrate into America, but it's to impact it. We have to impact uh, the belief system in this country because the belief system now says we don't matter, right? And and that's um, you know sort of the perspective that we're moving from. The uh, just so people know, uh, the diet school. Uh, protests that uh, Gigi Brown is uh, referring to took place in 2015 uh, and when Mayor Rahm Emanuel was in charge of things uh, in Chicago and uh, he wanted to close diet school and G2 Brown and many other activists and parents uh, in the neighborhood wanted to keep it open. I remember this one very well. And so they went on a hunger strike, drew a lot of attention to it. And ultimately, uh, Mayor Rahm was forced to pivot uh, and keep uh, diet open. It was a big deal. Jeanette Taylor was one of the hunger strikers and everybody knows Jeanette Taylor now. She's the older woman of the 20th Ward and a frequent guest on our show. Uh, so that was a pivotal moment in the city of Chicago. And uh, when that was going down, G2 when that diet school um, showdown was occurring, I, there was what really illuminated to me was a split uh, in the Democratic Party and a uh, split between, for lack of a better term, the activist uh, group in the Democratic Party, lefties like myself, uh, and the more establishment group in the Democratic Party, uh, Rahm Emanuel, etc. And I remember uh, what, what what struck me, one of the things that struck me about it was that at one point, Randy Weingarten, who's the head of the teachers union, the national teachers union, uh, wanted to, I think she came to town to, to support the hunger strikers. Uh, and Rahm yeah. wouldn't even, wouldn't even meet with her. And yeah. I'm like, I, it just kind of blew my mind that the democratic mayor of the city of Chicago uh, was at odds with essentially one of the largest democratic based capital D I'm talking about democratic based unions. You're talking about a split, you know what I mean? They had to go to my guy, PC, Peter Cunningham to uh, get, get a meeting between Randy Weingarten. Peter was always like the liaison between the lefties and, and Rom. Uh, to get a meeting with Randy Weingarten and it just, uh, it just blows my mind and how uh, divided Democrats were. They won't even talk to each other, G2 Brown. And um, so I, I, I don't know how we could go forward with these kinds of divisions uh, with the Democratic Party. Get your thoughts, G2, and then I know Monroe's got things he want to say. Go ahead, G2. I mean, I, I think the definition of insanity, as we know, is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And even in progressive circles, I'm, 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 as the young people say, I'm going to keep it 100. Um, folks are very progressive until it comes to questions of black self-determination. Because when you ask yourself what has been the biggest thing snatched from black 
and Native American communities. It's the right to self-determination. We've actually had an assault on our right to be independent. This documented history of black cities and black communities burned to the ground in this country, in Delaware, all over this country, right? And so, like, like I said, when you go through most urban spaces, you know, you live. In, I, I live. In, I live in Austin right now. I live in a neighborhood where we own less than twenty percent of the businesses that operate in these communities, and that's a national piece. And it was not always like that. I was young enough to remember when the. I'm fifty-five now, but I remember when the, I grew up on the far south side in the Roseland community, and the owner of the gas station was black, and most of the business there was no liquor store ran by Arabs. It was a, a, a white hand pantry owned by somebody that looked like me. And that sense of community ownership um, has been stripped from many of our communities. And I, so I think if we want to bridge that gap, then those closest to the pain have to be closest to the power. We have to stop thinking because we have a title that somehow that makes us more qualified. We have to start listening to Ms. Jones, who may have a high school diploma and some kids, but Ms. Jones is the mother of the neighborhood. And, and Ms. Jones can tell you where the issues really are. Not her opinion about what they are, but based on her lived experience. Uh, when young people say they want police-free schools, you know, it's because the perception of black children is that they must be policed, right? That's racist. That's, that's rooted in racism. If, you know, when you look at a gang member, here's something, that, you know, in my history, I've worked with brothers on the street my whole adult life. And the one thing I'll say, is that every shooter was once in third grade. So what was their lived experience? Well, the children are doing carjackings right now. Who are they? These are the children of school closings. These are the children that have gone to schools that have been absolutely unresourced and have been taught that they don't matter. Now, the cowardly thing that is, well, you, it's the parents' fault. It's the parents' fault. Oh, communities shape belief systems. Your experience is not individuals, it's the culture in the community that shapes belief systems. So we have to look at how basic quality of life institutions are set up to shape people's development. Like most Americans don't have to worry about whether they have a grocery store or not, or whether they have a hospital. You know that I was just in the midst of a campaign. I mean, saying this, Brother Anderson, is like somewhat traumatic. But I was in the midst of a campaign to stop the closure of Mercy Hospital in the middle of a global pandemic. We have 31% of the population and 70% of the deaths. And they said, excuse me, you N-words don't matter. We're shutting this hospital down. Now, like I said, the greatest weakness of any oppressor is to underestimate the oppressor, especially when people have a backbone. And in Bondsville, our folks got a backbone. And we organized and we saved that hospital. But the fact that we have to, right, the fact that we have to do stuff like that, mm. that we have to go on hunger strikes for a good neighborhood high school mm. speaks to the belief system we're up against. So that is a very detailed way to answer your question, mm. to say that we have to, the way we bridge the gap is that we have to begin to lift up grassroots voices, create those spaces where people can actually organize again. Because after the Black Power Movement, organizing disappeared in Black communities because it was was violent repression of that infrastructure. So in most Black communities around the United States, you have a lot of social service groups 
and God bless them. I, I'm not disparaging them at all. But those social service groups are not meant to transform society. They are meant to be a Band-Aid on a bullet wound, right? And often funded by the same interests that you have to hold accountable. So they're not the ones that are going to storm the castle. We need the revital. We need the revitalizing of that spirit of community organizing in communities of color across this country, because that's the only way that we're going to change it in the interest of those people that are, are directly impacted. And, that, and and so, to me, um, you know, it's old proverb say the truth is simple. If it's complicated, it's a lot. So I, I'm I'm <laughs> of the mindset that. You know, I'm not, you know, equity cannot be determined by the seats of privilege. You know, as a result of a lot of the hard work of people around the country, school districts, cities, municipalities all over the country now have equity offices. But you have the equity offices are still in those ivory towers expressing their opinions on what equity is, yeah. as opposed to listening to people who suffer from inequity. Yeah, no, uh, we have an equity office here in the city of Chicago. All right, Monroe, uh, you heard G2. Uh, we were talking before he came on uh, about the political divide. Uh, what's your thought about that? Revitalizing the spirit of community organizations uh, and uh, not backing down and not and, and standing up for certain principles, certain rights and certain uh, demands, if you will, uh, in the face of people saying, back down, don't be strident. Don't draw attention to yourself. You're going to scare white people in the suburbs. You see this uh, divide that we've been talking about, Monroe. Your thoughts about this? Uh, my, my thoughts are that uh, we need to be vocal and specific and strategic. Um, I'm, I'm a child of the 60s um, when the, the whole black power movement began. And I participated in, in um, protests back then. And we got things done. We would, we would show up in meetings with a list of t- 10 neg- non-negotiable demands. And before it was over, we would have negotiated on maybe five of them. But the other five we got done. Uh, and it, it was direct. I... Th- that's happening now. It's not that it's not happening, but um, it could happen more. And I, I, I think that um, activists need to be acting on the Democratic Party right now because they're doing way too much um, um, talking and not enough action. So they need somebody to light a fire on, under them because we're in very dangerous times. I agree. I agree too. And, and I think that all too often, uh, the, what we see is what, what went down uh, the last couple of day or the uh, yesterday in the elections where if Democrats don't respond, and by the way, Republicans are doing absolutely nothing. It's so funny because there's always a debate on the, on the Democratic side, G2 Brown. Republicans do nothing. Absolutely well, nothing. No, they're blocking. That's what. Yeah. They, okay. So they do negatory things. Right, exactly. Right. So they don't even have to deal with this. As they govern, they govern and will really campaign of fear. So yeah. this whole thing around critical race theory, you know, and and how, but you know, they uh, the the right wing funders and even the corporate Democratic funders 
have poured millions of dollars into all these fake uh, parent groups around the country. Uh, they began to run people for school boards. Um, and if you teach critical race theory, you'll teach your child not to not to be proud to be white. You know, uh, with no accountability for the the centuries of shattering the image of black people, of uh, uh, sending Native American people to Christian schools and beating them if they didn't cut the hair, you know, um, for policing black and brown children right now um, and uh, setting up environments where there is no inspiration. I view education as inspiration and information that prepare people to impact the world. And so the most important part of education is inspiration. And when children go to schools where they're treated like criminals, when children go to schools where they're test taking factories, then you t- the light of inspiration is 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 um, eliminated, is it's is doused, and that is what I've seen in the years of I, I, where I've worked in public schools. Um, so I think the notion that uh, Republicans are doing more for their bases is is a myth, right? Uh, they, again, they've operated off fear. And unfortunately, their base is not politicized enough to see through it. Yeah. You know, but we also know that that's not new. We know that uh, now back in the day, it was Democrats doing this. But we know there was a moment in this country's history where the enslaved and poor whites w- were seeking some unity. And the elite class simply, you know, said, well, we'll treat you better than them. Yeah. And they drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> and they've been drinking it ever since. So I think... You know, it's, it's really important, uh, the, the notion of, there's no easy way out of this. I mean, the, 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 the notion is that we have to build. Um, hey, what, I, I call, what I call a conscious constituency. We have to develop a conscious, yeah. Yeah, get, getting to that, um, it's apparent to me at this point that part of the Republican strategy to take back the uh, Senate and House next year is to um, take this critical race theory and use that as a rallying cry for the the, um, white women, suburbanites in particular, but um, independents also. Mm -hmm. So... As a community organizer, it seems that what you guys ought to be doing is just the opposite of that. Right now and up until uh, a year from now, where you're, you're t- not using CRT because that, that's, that's, that's nonsense, but attacking mm-hmm. a notion that um, is harmful for white children to know the history of this country, absolutely. Uh, that that we ought to be teaching uh, sixteen, nineteen, mm-hmm. and uh, seventeen seventy six. Mm-hmm. Those those two should not be opposed to each other, but you should be teaching both of them so that you know, as as a young person in this country, mm-hmm. where things are, so you'll be a better student. Yeah, but somebody, better citizen. Yeah, a better citizen. I'm, yeah, sorry. But mm-hmm. somebody needs to be countering what 
the Republicans are doing, where uh, anything that's negative about white people and it, the history of this country, they want to suppress. Yeah, I mean, you know, so a lot of the work that we that we were doing uh, pre-pandemic yeah. was working to impact uh, the president, the education agenda of the next president. So I do want to say that um, our demand for 25,000 sustainable community schools by 2025 was adopted by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren uh, because prior to, uh, in the previous administration, both Obama and Donald Trump, the biggest funder of char- the charter industry was the federal government. And community schools were only funded for $17 million. Yeah. Well, we, we, we were able to organize the first ever um, presidential forum on education equity in Pittsburgh on December 14th, 2019. And as a result of that, we got all the major candidates there. Um, and we pushed labor on this because labor was saying, well, we already meet with them. I said, yeah, they meet with you, but they don't meet with us. And so we were able to push labor. And it was about maybe 1,500 people there, um, at least 1,000 parents from our members across the country. And we were able to transform Biden's education agenda. So right now, uh, community schools is in its budget for $440 million. The, the, the Title I is doubled in its budget. So we yeah. got to fight to make sure it stays in there. But to your point, um, I think the piece has to be uh, like we have a group in New York called New York Coalition for Education Justice, and they were able to win uh, a transformation of New York's uh, curriculum to make New York's curriculum culturally responsive, right, and relevant. And so they won $24 million towards the, trans- the transformation of that curriculum. And parents are deeply engaged in their work. And so we want that uh, policy to be a, a na- national policy. Uh, and community schools gives you the space to do that because you actually have input. We're talking about a curriculum that's culturally relevant, engaging, and challenging, supports for high-quality teaching, not standardized testing, wraparound supports for every child, uh, student-centered school client, which means you know, no zero tolerance, but actually having things like restorative justice and student leadership development programs where young people can actually solve community problems in the school building, a transformative parent and community engagement. Parents should be seen as a resource. Community should be seen as a resource. I'll give you an example. One of the, the greatest educators I ever worked with, she's retired now, but her name was Laverne Bailey, Fuller Elementary School. And one of the things she did for social studies is she partnered with a, a, a church called Kenwood United Church of Christ and actually sent young people there at, under the direction of the pastor to interview men and women that were coming to the soup kitchen that were homeless to understand how people became homeless because she understood that the community is also a, a space of education for young people. And then finally, to have a school leader that, that is inclusive, that believes in community wisdom and academic expertise. We believe those are pillars of a successful school. Yeah, so, that's your yeah, let me, yeah, let, let me do this. You're arguing procedure and program, which is important mm-hmm. in the long run. But mm-hmm. to get to people, um, you should be arguing stories and facts. I mean, for example, Absolutely. 
when, when I was in the 60s, as a student in the 60s, when the Black Power Movement was starting, uh, Stokely Carmichael, one of the things he said was that um, the Philly dog is just as valuable as ballet. Uh, that was very, very much to the point. And mm-hmm. it was something that, that like put a, a light bulb in my head, you know, to, to think about. Like, you know, we worshiped the ballet was the only dance or, or the main dance considered of value in this country. And um, mm-hmm. dancing cre- was being created in our communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was um, as expressive it took just as much talent in some instances. And and now we have a situation where the main export uh, of American culture is uh, rap, dance, and music, and et cetera. It's that, that's, uh, it's, that's come to be. That, that did not exist uh, 50 years ago. So mm-hmm. with education, for example, um, I, I, I read lately that in 1958, 1858 in California, mm-hmm. while we were about to outlaw slavery in America, and slavery was already outlawed in California, they mm-hmm. enslaved Native Americans. Mm-hmm. They were enslaving them. Um, mm-hmm. And in and, and talking um, about educating our people, you know, if you could could uh, bring in lessons of education like that that people mm-hmm. don't know, you could mm-hmm. mix that into it where it's like um, it's an aha moment for people. Mm-hmm. I think that could be a lot more effective than just, uh, I mean, behind the scenes, obviously, what you're doing needs to be done. But mm-hmm. to get press coverage, to get people to thinking and talking, um, mm-hmm. You used to. You need to use some of these stories and facts that they're not familiar with. You know, Mon- Monroe, listening to you, uh, listening to G two, it just strikes me how what a contradiction uh, our country is when it comes to black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, let me just explain. Like when you were doing that that uh, that line about Stokely Carmichael and ballet, and the, uh, it just Philly there's dog. a the Philly dog. There's a, a debate right now, not even a debate, but baseball. Follow me on this, guys. I, there's a point to where I'm going with this. Yeah. So okay. baseball, there's hardly any black players in baseball now. G2, right. when you were young, mm-hmm. the right. greatest stars in baseball were black men from America, mm-hmm. black Americans. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, now there's only one great star in the city of Chicago, uh, black a star. His name is Tim Anderson. He plays for the White Sox. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So baseball says we're having a crisis. We need more black people playing our sport and watching our sport. And I'm like, and I'm thinking about this. Well, G2, why is that a crisis? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you still got players. They're great players. You know, you mm-hmm. the, the numbers are high. I don't know why it's a crisis. And you know why? Because mm-hmm. When black people embrace a sport or a music or an entertainment, it like leads the way. 
and white people will follow. G2, I'm not making this up. This is what they're saying right now in baseball. We need more black people embracing baseball in order to get more white people to think it's cool and then particularly younger white people, and they will embrace baseball. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, it, I'm like, are you kidding me? But you know, <laughs> we, are the, we are American culture right now. Yeah. African-Americans. But at the same time, you you want to get elected governor of Virginia, G2 Brown? You scare white people with telling them the history of black people. Right. right. And you bring out Candelisa Rice to say you're all good, white people. Don't Mm -hmm. worry. Don't listen to G2 Brown or Monroe Anderson or those other troublemakers. Yeah. But remember that in Virginia, there were also uh, uh, women of color who the progressives were pushing forward to run for governor. And they chose this guy who lost two out of three elections. This, you know, there's an unwillingness. You know, we're still holding on to this Rahm Emanuel, um, uh, Richard Daly um, approach to the Democratic Party. It's like, I look at it like- Bill Clinton. Don't leave him out of that sentence, G2. (laughs) You know, the the world- Put him in that sentence too. Yeah, think about it. When George Floyd was mur- was lynched, um, you know, white people, this was not, to, we were in the middle of a pandemic, so you couldn't turn away from it. Everywhere you looked, they saw the knee on this man's neck. And the consciousness of people were raised. And so people was like, you know what? Th- this just ain't right. And so people who never protested a day in their life, white, black, brown, and blue, stood up. Um the world is changing. Yeah, this would no longer, you know, as, as we know, some 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 uh, 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 folks predict that in the year twenty thirty, uh, whites will no longer be the majority in this country. Um, yeah, they, I've seen yeah, right, right now the uh, whites are the minority in baby births. At this yes. minute, yes. And so, one of the things that uh, going back to your baseball analogy. Um, cause you know, I, I played baseball and football and I, I grew up, you know, but when I, I grew up, you had baseball leagues in almost every park. So remember Kirby Puckett, Kirby Puckett came from Robert Taylor homes, Robert Taylor projects, but you, so every league, every park had a baseball league. What did that do? Crime went down. When I was a child being, if you were a game banger, you would look at like a, you would look at like a goofy. We didn't game bang when I was coming up. We were athletes. We were athletes and running after girls. And if you was walking around with your hat cocked to the right, you're like, man, what's up with you? Then crack hit. And when crack cocaine hit, things changed. But now think about the Jackie Robinson West Little League and how they got penalized because they had kids who were from other neighborhoods. Well, those kids are from other neighborhoods because those neighborhoods no longer have baseball leagues. So the infrastructure that that provided athletes to you remember one of the best baseball, two of the best baseball programs in the state used to be Simeon and Harlan High School. Mm-hmm. These were two of the best baseball programs in the state. Yeah. But and then Clemente, right? Um, so I think and and and, and the the nineteen ninety six crime bill uh, yeah. that criminalized Black America. Oh yeah, uh, with the drugs, put a lot of those people who would have been coaches for baseball teams in prisons. And, and so I remember when the crime, 
Brother Anderson, I remember when the crime bill, I was young in this work. I've been doing this work maybe four years when the crime bill hit. Yeah. And I remember being in Ida B. Wells projects. And we used to do, uh, at, at the Center for Inner City Studies, we used to do our summer program there. Yeah. And that's something good. And, and I remember two busloads, two school buses coming to pick up kids and take them to jail out of Ida B. Wells' house. I'll never forget that. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you look at that, when you look at then the policies that followed that, which was zero tolerance, you, you mean if you could just really sit back right, and imagine out. Yeah, yeah, the right. millions of lives that have right. been ruined. Right. Not only the men, not only the boys, but their families. Right. How many kids grew up with no father? Right. How, how many guys got out of jail with that felony on their record and, they, and, and their lives are basically over? Right. See, you know, so to to your point around telling the stories, we 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 actively do that. And we have to do that when we do our work because that's the only way that people connect. Exactly. People connect the stories, right? Making the connection. Yes, sir. No, I feel you on that. Yeah. But I, I think that's what I'm saying. Moving forward, I believe that we have to begin to, to demand that voices from the ground are heard. That's why Journey for Justice Alliance was created because we were born because we were the, we were the first organization fighting school closings in Chicago. And as we were fighting it, organizers from other cities, as as Renaissance 2010 began to spread around the country, start calling us, right? I feel alone. I feel isolated. They, they treat me, you know, they're closing my kids' school, but they're not addressing the fact that they've starved us of resources, that they've done this and done that. And so that's how J4J was born. And so we said that one of the things that we want to do is we want to inspire the rebirth of that community organizing spirit, which is why this equity or else campaign is so important because we reached out to folks that are like the, the Eastern Michigan environmental action council, people for community recovery, appetite for change that organizes around food justice out of Minneapolis and say, let's stop working in our silos and let's be visionary. Let's be visionary. And so I think that work is so important because brother Anderson said it right. We are in a very dangerous time. We are in a dangerous time. Yeah, let me say we are in a very dangerous time, and I I fear that the lesson that the Democrats will take out of yesterday's elections will be the exact opposite of what you, both you and Monroe are saying, and I fear that the election that the 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 message they'll take is don't teach, but don't even call it critical race theory. You can't even teach people about slavery in some part, or, or you get in trouble. And so I hope that that's not the lesson, but Gigi have been around a long time and I understand how the democratic party thinks. Mm-hmm. And I know right now that's what they're drawing up. Oh yeah. You know, they're, they're going to always, they're going to always take the path of least courage. Right. And so, I mean, I think that that, that's something we can expect, but I will say this again, but white supremacy. That's what it is. Uh, the, uh, at the end of the day. Yeah. The I mean, which is gone. It happened time and time and time again. Uh, reconstruction. We were doing just fine right after slavery and reconstruction was in play. Uh, we were getting um, in politics and what have you. Uh, the North and the South politicians cut a deal where they could yeah. all get along and mm-hmm. we were victimized. 
And, and that was the beginning of, of uh, what we're now just still trying to get out of. Mm-hmm. Okay. Monroe, I got to ask you this. Yes. Uh, we're, I'm looking at the clock. We're running out of time here and I need to get your thoughts on this. This was on my list of things to ask you about. Uh, and so I'm going to ask you about them and uh, maybe G2 has some thoughts on this. I don't know if he does, but uh, one of the election results from yesterday that we have not talked about is the mayor's race in New York city. And Eric Adams was victorious. And Monroe, you and I talked a lot about Eric Adams yes. a few months ago when we were covering, we're talking about the New York primary when the Democrats were running. Eric Adams is a black man, a oh. former police officer. Uh, and uh, he ran uh, on a platform. He won the Democratic primary on a platform. We're talking about cracking down on crime, et cetera, and uh, police abuse of black people. Right. which was an interesting balancing act, right. uh, to put it mildly. He mopped the floor with Curtis Sliwa. I don't know if you remember who Curtis Sliwa oh, is, Monroe Henderson, the <laughs> Guardian did, Angels. Did you know Curtis has 17 cats? <laughs> yeah. I'm serious. Yeah. Uh, he thinks this campaign is he, he revealed that he has 17 cats and he got himself hit by a cab. Yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> Curtis okay, Sliwa, the head of Guardian Angels, loves cats, ladies right. and gentlemen. Uh, I'm not talking about the play. I'm talking about the actual creature. Uh, So your general thoughts about the fact that New York City is going to have a black man as its mayor uh, and and your general thoughts about Eric Adams uh, and what his uh, victory says for the future of politics in this country. Go ahead, Monroe Anderson. Okay, uh, a a couple of things. Um, He's the second black mayor. That's correct. Yeah, but it's, Dinkins, just, there was, there was Dinkins. Not forgotten the great David, David yeah, Dinkins. Yeah. And uh, secondly, is that I've, I, I like to um, trace all this back to Harold Washington. And that Harold, in, in his bravery in, in, in facing down the 29, well, getting elected to begin with, the facing down the 29, he set a standard that um, a whole bunch of black, black politicians are now judged by for good reason. And um, I think it, uh, we'll have to see what, um, what the new black mayor of New York City does. I mean, because he, he has a chance to do a lot of things because he was a cop. He can uh, uh, c- c- call the police force in for a little talk about what they should and should not be doing. He has that credibility, but I don't know if he has that mentality or not, or whether it's just, he's just going to be, okay, me and my boys are running this now. <laughs> what do you think, uh, G2? G2, your thoughts on uh, Eric Adams, the new mayor of New York City. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know him, but one of my partners knows him, uh, Zakia Ansari, who's a state advocacy director for the Alliance for Quality Education out of New York, and um, they they feel like he's a corporate Democrat. Um, again, I don't I don't know him, I don't know that much about him, but they they were really kind of concerned. But they they also said that, that there was no like really solid candidate that was running. So um, their concerns is that. You know, he's going to be um, bending to the interests of those folks to say lock him up, stop and frisk, and that type of deal. Uh, and they're also concerned about his education agenda. So time will tell. 
we'll see. But um, I, I do think that um, a lot of the work that's being called upon it, and you know, I, I've been um, often at odds with progressives because you know my point to them is that you know you're progressive until it comes to black self determination, right? And yeah, if right. you're gonna you if you're gonna be progressive, then those closest to the pain have to be closest to the power. You can't, you know, you, okay, you progressive around marriage equality, but you, you're not saying anything about how we're being pushed, how, how schools and housing has been weaponized all over this country to push black people out, right? But you want me to be your partner, but you, you're oblivious to my pain, you know? And, and I think that's something that's very dangerous right now. Um, you know, every city in this country where the charter industry is taking root, every city, the black population is plummeted. Chicago, D.C. We remember D.C. was called Chocolate City. Right now, D.C. is about 49% black, second most chartered district in the United States. New Orleans, Oakland, California, which has gone from like 56% black to 25%. I can I can name a, I can keep naming cities. The, this yeah, the neighborhood in Boston that used to be black is is gone. Yeah. And what is Boston and Chicago having what does Boston and Chicago have in common? Mayoral control. Like Boston was the first urban city to have mayoral control. Chicago was the second. Mm -hmm. And so to push black people out of Boston, right? They began the process of school closings and the elimination of affordable housing. Same thing in Chicago. I mean, that's really what the fight for diet was all about. It was really because that's where they wanted to put the Obama presidential center. People don't talk about that. I saw the plan. That's where they wanted to put the Obama presidential center. And you know, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Uh, where, where they, they wanted to put the diet in Washington Park? Oh, yeah. They wanted to put it in Washington Park at first. And so, okay. when you looked at the plans, the northernmost part of the uh, presidential center was where diet currently sits. Okay. And so, we know that if you put the presidential center there, you're not going to put an African hair braiding shop or a um, a currency exchange or a shark's fish next to it. You know, you, 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 you're, you're going to be building housing. You're going to be building boutique businesses. So we know what that means. G2, know you know, before the Obama Center, yes, they sir. were going to eradicate diet for the Olympics. Yeah. Don't get me started, G2 Brown. You remember. Yeah. You remember yeah. that. You're old enough to remember that. And, and we uh, were in that, remember, we were in that fight calling for a community benefits yes. agreement um, because we knew what that meant. We knew it. And, and, and back to the point uh, about, um, you know, birth rates being low uh, for, for white people and uh, the projections of the demographics in this country in the next 10 to 15 years. I'm not naive enough to believe that, that folks that run nations don't look at stuff like that and then create policies to make sure that they don't lose power. I, I just think that, that we'd be naive to think anything different. And so all of this stuff is connected. And, and, and so for us, um, I, I don't, I think this American rescue act is an opportunity, but it ain't, it ain't the finish line, but it is an opportunity to begin to demand some, some stability in the lives of our folk. Um, you know, people forget that Rahm Emanuel did more than close 50 schools. He also shut down mental health centers. Yeah. And so now a guy that needs, that needs mental health is on the bus stop at six o'clock when your mom goes to the bus stop. Right. And 
Right. You know, so so the destabilizing, you know, I have this belief. You build community by building good, basic quality of life institutions, and you kill community by destroying those institutions. That's why when they gentrify a neighborhood, you see a Whole Foods pop up, right? You see good housing pop up because they want that you see uh, like when when King High School was turned into King College Prep. Right. Uh, in, in 1999, that's because that uh, Bronzeville, Kenwood, Oakland in particular, and, and that area was gentrifying and right. they wanted to create a school that people would feel comfortable sending their children to. Now, why not resource King High School like that ahead of time? But no. So what they did is they just shut the high school down. They made it a selective enrollment and then they, they turned diet into a high school with three months notice. Yeah. So that yeah, but these that. Are- that's a that's a belief system. I don't want to make this too. I don't like that's that's a belief system at play that says we don't matter. You close medical health, medical mental health clinics because we don't matter. You 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 um you cover up the murder of Laquan McDonald because we don't matter. There's a belief system that has rotted American policy, and 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 to me, there's there's no way forward until we deal with that. Until we deal with that. All right, Chief. Go ahead, Monroe. I have a quick question for you. Okay. In, in dealing with that, um, how much as a community organizer are you pushing for uh, more training, uh, um, you know, um, plumbers, welders, et cetera, that training and high tech training? Because that, I mean, I mean, if you get those types of things back into the community, mm-hmm. that will make a difference, a big difference. Yeah, we have a project called at Coco called the Bronzeville Nia Project, and one of our partners is the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. Yeah, and the Bronzeville Nia Project is about teaching young people, yeah. uh, sixteen to twenty-four, um, trades, entrepreneurship. And then the, the newest trade, the new, the fastest growing trade in the country is green technology. Right. 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 And so young people learning that. So we, we are, we are doing that work. And I think, see, to me, that's why the, I'm going to say it a different way. Community control of schools is essential because just like local school councils in Chicago, are wild are very important and with support are wildly successful because local site management works best. So we know that communities know what they need more than bureaucrats. And so if we are able to shape a child's education around what their real needs are, like what they need to know, like in my humble opinion, uh, one, you know, I think that every black child in the city of Chicago should learn economics and entrepreneurship. Yeah. Because the things that I saw as a child, a child of the 70s, the thing that I saw, children don't see today. Like I said, I, I used to go to the Clark gas station on 103rd in Eberhardt and see the man sitting out there with my father drinking a beer, right? But he owned it. I used to go to the cleaners across the street from my house, that down the street from my house, the McDonald's, the, the Nettie's ice cream nook, the White Hand Pantry, and I saw ownership. I saw us in lead. Another thing that's dangerous that's happening is throughout America's public schools, the ranks of black teachers have been decimated. So now children are learning 
and this is this is important for all children, not just black children, but in particular, black children are learning that we are not fit to lead because when they see teachers, they see young white women that are transient. They stay at those schools for two or three years and they leave because they often are either whether it's through Teach for America or some other teacher preparation program, they get forgivable loans to teach in the hood. Yeah. And after they teach for a few years, they leave. So the note, like I had a teacher named Miss Coleman. Miss Coleman was my fourth grade teacher. I'm the oldest of four. And Miss Coleman would see my mother at the grocery store, but she also taught my little brothers and sisters, right? Yeah. And so those things are important. And we right now we are in a dangerous time. I, I don't think public school is ever gonna go back to what it was. Not that it should. But I don't think I think them days are over. I think I believe these masks are going to be a part of our life for the foreseeable future. And, and you know, now they're saying the Delta variant has another variant. Right. Or let's yeah. call it what it is. The mutation yeah. has another mutation. No. So yeah. who, who knows how long we're going to be in this. Right? right. And so I think in addition to what you're saying, Brother Anderson, I think like one of the things that came out of the black power movement were independent black schools that were called shoelaces all over the United States. Yeah. I think we're going to have to create alternative structures where we, we are in churches, we are in community centers, and we are creating alternative educational opportunities for our young people. I do not think, while I believe in community schools, I do not think that is the only solution. We have to create that infrastructure where our young people get a sense of who they are, the world they live in, and how they can impact it. It's, 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 it's essential. We have to build change makers. We, we are past the days of building factory workers, right? We have to build thinkers. Right. And so that's, that's what I want to offer on that. Okay. All right. Very good. We've run out of time. Uh, Monroe Anderson and G2 Brown. Uh, thank you very much for uh, being on the show. Monroe Anderson every Wednesday on the Ben Jarowski show. Uh, for as long as I've been talking to him on the microphone, he's been with me uh, on Wednesdays. So appreciate it, uh, Monroe Anderson and G2 Brown. It's been too long since you've been on the show. Yes, sir. Uh, so welcome back, Cotter. Uh, your favorite <laughs> show from the 70s. And uh, I got a smile out of G2 in that one. Uh, he was a huge fan of Welcome Back, Cotter, Monroe. You didn't know that. Um, and, uh, gentlemen, thank you very much. I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Monroe and G2 will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. President, this is the same motion that Alderman Riley used last month when all items were sent to rules. It's actually not the same motion. Um, I, you have to. You, then I would move to temporarily suspend the rules to re-refer these items. There you are. There's a I'm motion. Sick of it.